0: Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be looking really just at a portion of a verse. Once again, taking a snail's pace through this sermon series on Hebrews. So, Hebrews chapter 1, But we'll read the verses 1 through 4 at the beginning, which is one singular sentence in the Greek. Now, every once in a while, I I get a little controversial from the pulpit. And I know there are some differences among us on very weighty issues, even within our own congregation. But hear me out. I think we can all agree that music peaked in the 80s, right? I mean... (laughs) That's something that we should all recognize. Um, I think we can all agree that soft rock was the genre of the 80s. And, and now, where it gets a little controversial is narrowing down a favorite soft rock song. right? But I would have to say, among the challengers is The Glory of Love by Peter Cetera. Um, has to be in the running. right? It was released in 1986, shortly after Cetera left the best band, uh, Chicago, one of the greatest bands of all time. This song was featured in the closing of Karate Kid Part 2, one of the best movies of all time. So, I mean, the best... Again, these are, these are non-controversial issues. But, the, but no, on, on, a, on a serious note, like, songs, the best songs, if you think about it, deal with big ideas, right? Large all-encompassing ideas. Glory is one of those ideas. many of us would probably struggle to come up with a simple definition of glory. It really covers such a broad semantic domain. Um, But before we get to defining the term as it's found in scripture, I I want us to remember the context here. Um, Due to the incessant cultural pressure that this community of Jewish Christians was under, probably in Rome, they were vulnerable. They were were open to being discouraged, depressed, um, confused. And so they seemed to be on, on the precipice of compromise and ready to abandon their Christian faith and not really growing in their faith. Uh, the author rebukes them, like, you're, you're still in need of milk. You're still in the earliest phase of your faith. Right? You should be feeding on meat by now. And so, it's, it seems they're, they're, they're about ready to compromise. And one of the ways they're tempted to compromise is to abandon their Christian faith and to return to the, the practices of the Judaic church. We've mentioned that multiple times the author's primary purpose here is then to elevate the value of Christ so that apostasy becomes unthinkable. If Christ is someone that is all supreme, that encompasses everything that, that is good in your life, then how could you imagine departing from him? How could you imagine deserting him? And so, in other words, they've they won't find a more spectacular display of the glory of God by departing from the substance of Christ and returning to his shadows. And so how do we steal ourselves in this day and age? How do we prepare ourselves to face the temptation to wander away from the faith? Well, the answer here is that to frequently gaze upon the brightness of God's glory. Christ that it's it's through that that you'll find every other alternative increasingly dims in your life so before we read it let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it heavenly father we thank you for your word we do thank you that we can come to commune with you through your word that you have revealed yourself to us and that revelation is brightest in your Son. Lord, help us to reflect upon these things this morning and, Lord, to, to be moved by them, that our affections would be drawn closer to you, that we would have a desire as we depart to honor and glorify your name. Lord, that even throughout this worship service, you would be at work in our hearts to bring conviction of sin. But, Lord, not to send us away, not to flee from your presence, but to to enter in, in humility. To confess our sins before you and to receive that assurance of pardon. Lord, we need that this morning and we pray that you would be at work through your word. That you would meet us where we are, each individually, Lord, that you would speak to us. And that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth and hearts that are softened to respond appropriately. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter one, we'll look at verses one through four. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, This is God's Holy Word. Robert Paul Martin in his commentary on this passage acknowledges that structurally this section, this opening chapter of Hebrews, structurally it's complex. Theologically it is rich. So so some actually see fragments of, of either a hymn or some kind of confession of faith for the early church in this section. They see uh, just the, maybe the transitions in the, in the grammar that they recognize. He's, he must be quoting or pulling from something some statement that, that the early church would have been familiar with uh, and then incorporating it, incorporating it in. But regardless of how we understand this passage, we recognize that it is, is deep truths. It's enriching concepts for us to consider. It is theologically rich. And so we are pacing ourselves here, carefully examining each phrase. And previously we looked at uh, the first uh, couple of verses and, and really just the two aspects of the Son's identity that we looked at last week were the Son as the heir of all things and then the Son as the agent of creation. So this morning we're just going to look at the next description of the Son. We're getting a, 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 a kind of a, a, an understanding of the, the identity of the Son of God? What, what represents Him? How does, how does Scripture define Him? And so, the first point in your outline is this, that the Son radiates God's glory. The Son radiates God's glory. Radiance, it only occurs here in the New Testament. And this is the only place you'll find that word in Greek. In the New Testament, it only occurs once in the Septuagint, and even there, it's, it occurs in a book that many of us would consider apocryphal in the Wisdom of Solomon. Chapter 7, verses 25 through 28, dated to just 50 uh, years before Christ, about 50 BC. But the point is, if they were familiar with, their, with reading the Septuagint, if the audience would have understood this phrasing, this idea, this word radiance, well, there it's attached to wisdom. To specifically a divine wisdom as an attribute of God. It sort of personifies wisdom, much like you'll find in, in Solomon, uh, in, you know, in Proverbs. But any, So anyone familiar with this divine wisdom might immediately recognize that here the author is, is highlighting the superiority of the Son. And he's attaching this same language to a person, not a personified attribute of God. The author has taken here a familiar term and then used it to reinforce his Christology. Now, the word glory is oftentimes used to refer in both the Old and New Testament to fame and honor. When we glorify God, we're honoring him and acknowledging his worthiness to be praised. Uh, His fame and his reputation are upheld by the adoration of of his creatures, and so when you you find the Septuagint throughout, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word that's most commonly translated as doxa, or praise, that we find here in in the Greek, is kavod, that's the Hebrew word, right, so kavod literally means like heavy or weighty. Uh, One of my favorite essays from C.S. Lewis is titled The Weight of Glory. It's really a a play on the meaning of glory. It's it's a play on the word um, in the title. But think of when the glory of God settled upon Mount Sinai. It uses that, it it calls it the glory of God settling upon Mount Sinai. What What was it represented by? What would the people have seen when they saw that? They would have seen this luminous cloud coming down, lightning, thunder. They would have seen that coming down upon the mountain. And It would have settled representing god's presence okay it rested upon them though with a with a heaviness or a weightiness and the sight was so terrifying that the people asked moses to speak to god directly if you want you can turn with me or i'll just read it but in exodus chapter 20 we see this exodus chapter 20 verses 18 through 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And they saw the power they saw the supremacy and the authority of god in his presence resting upon mount sinai and it made them so terrified that they did not want to be the, to be with him without some mediator right? without moses speaking for them and him speaking to moses in their behalf and yet following the people's defeat to the philistines in first samuel chapter 4 the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and the Israelites lament and they say that the glory departed. The, the absence of the Ark represents the, the presence of God and his glory departing now that it's been taken from them. So that same glory that cause, causes some people to hide in trembling fear can also draw others in with a trembling joy. It's deep, it's profound, and yet we see this over and over, the, the, the command not to be afraid of God, but to fear God. Not to, not to be so afraid that you would run away from him, but to come before him with reverence, with awe, with a trembling joy. In Acts twenty two eleven, Paul speaks of doxa, or the glory of the light that blinded him as he journeyed toward Damascus. And right? He was persecuting Christians, dragging them out of their homes. And on his way to Damascus to, to do the same thing, this light blinds him. And he says, the glory shone about him. So the glory refers to the, the brightness of light, a blinding kind of light. This is why the transfiguration of Jesus, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. That's how Matthew describes the transfiguration in Matthew 17. And in Luke 9, it says when Peter, James, and John, who were, who were with him during this transfiguration, when they wake up from, from their sleeping, it says they saw his glory. They saw his doxa. And we mentioned this last week, this um, individual named Arius. He was an early 4th century um, uh, priest, and he taught that the son was subordinate to the father that he was not co-equal to the Father. He also taught that there was a time when the Son was not. So rather than being co-eternal with the Father, the Son was the Father's first created being. And it's for these reasons, for these teachings, that Arius was denounced as a heretic at the first council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And that was where the Nicene Creed was adopted. We've been reciting the Nicene Creed in our worship service the last few months, we'll transition actually to the Athanasian Creed, partly because I wanted to mention Athanasius today. Athanasius, in his late 20s, was Arius' most vocal opponent and the champion of orthodoxy. Uh, He became Bishop of Alexandria just two years after the Council of Nicaea, so probably no more than 30 years old, and he's the Bishop of Alexandria. The Aryan controversy would go on to define the rest of his life, even spanning five different periods of exile, that total 17 years spent in exile. But he held firm to his convictions throughout. This is what he says about this verse in particular. He says, who does not see that the brightness cannot be separated from the light? but that it is by nature proper to it and coexistent with it. You see, he's he's directly responding to Arius' teaching. It is by nature proper to it and coexistent with it and not produced by it. Likewise, Ambrose, later in the fourth century, agrees. He says this, think not that there was ever a moment of time when God was without wisdom, any more than that there was ever a time when light was without radiance. For where there is light, there is radiance, and where there is radiance, there is also light, and thus we cannot have a light without radiance, nor radiance without light, because both the light is in the radiance and the radiance in the light. We could go on and quote several other early church fathers that all confirmed using, using this same language in this way. There's also a a reference to brightness right when we see this language of brightness it's oftentimes talking about angelic beings even stars and you know uh, the sun and the moon um heavenly bodies so anticipating the objection that some might have had right that the sun was nothing more than a heavenly being as it's actually translated in Psalm 29.1 and 89.6, where the phrase sons of God is translated as heavenly beings in reference most likely to stars. So the author here argues that the divine glory of the sun is far superior to the glory of angels. And that's really the rest of the chapter. Verse four on to the end of chapter one. It's about the sun's superiority to angels. So he's, he's not... He's not just simply saying, hey, this this sun radiates the glory of God just like all of his creatures. He's the highest creature. He's saying that this sun is unique in, in the way in which he radiates the glory of God. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I just want to say the person of the sun is the radiance of God's glory. And yet as fallen creatures what do we do? We do our, our level best to find that glory in every possible alternative. This is where I want to bring us back to this essay from C.S. Lewis, right? But think about this, just before we get there, whenever we are confronted by something that's glorious, it, it takes our breath away. I think about the first time, if you have done this, first time hiking up Half Dome or some large mountain and you look out upon God's creation, and it's, it's beautiful, right? It's, in fact, humbling. It silences us as we just simply take in the beauty. Well, glory is like, glory transcends everything this earth has to offer. And yet, C.S. Lewis points out, we go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea it's at the opening of his essay weight of glory we're satisfied in other words with the trifling and fleeting pleasures of sin fools suppress the knowledge of god and it says they exchange his glory his glory for idols that resemble creation romans 123 this is typically much more subtle than you might imagine, right? Idolatry is not merely referring to worshiping images that have been carved out of wood or chiseled from stone. Lewis points out that idolatry occurs whenever we elevate the good things that we enjoy in this life to an ultimate status. We think of our desires, or we think that our desires can be satisfied by retrieving some past experience or even appreciating the beauty of music. The glory of love. <laughs> these things, right, they, we, we think that that is, that is what is like the, the, the pinnacle of glory. And these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, this is Lewis again, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. So we take something that's wonderful and beautiful and points us to God, but we make it God in his place. We we worship creation rather than the creator. And so the point of, of Lewis's essay is to say that even our idolatrous desires reveal something about our purpose as creatures of God, as his creation, as those who bear his image, in fact. They, su- they suggest something about the eternity for which we were made. Now, some might object that having a desire for food doesn't mean we will actually get food. And so, think about, tell this, you know, you might be thinking, well, tell that to the person who's starving. So, Lewis responds to that objection by this, saying this, a man's physical hunger does not prove that that man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic, but surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which prepares its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. Think about that. Your cravings reveal something about how you were made and what you were made for. In the same way, he goes on, though I do not believe, and he says, I wish I did, that my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it. I think it's a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some men will. It's a a powerful thought uh, thought experiment. And so it leads us to this third point. And maybe I didn't make it explicit if you're following along your outline. The, first, the second point was fallen man replaces God's glory. Fallen man replaces God's glory. And the third point is redeemed man reflects God's glory. So although we cannot literally diminish God's glory, whenever we fail to honor him in thought, word, and deed, we rob him of the glory that we owe him. Instead of meditating upon this truth, we are drawn into worship that that begins to impact who we are. That's that's how we we begin to reflect. So we begin to reflect by meditating upon his truth and being drawn into worship. Otherwise... We're worshiping someone or something else. We're giving the glory that is due to God to someone else or something else. So our identity begins to be defined by whatever it is that we worship. You see this concept where, where we begin to, to, to be spiritually deaf, spiritually mute, mute spiritually dumb. In his excellent book we become what we worship Greg Bill points out how believers will have the privilege of perfectly reflecting the glory of God he says this just at the, as the close proximity of the high priest to the divine glory and he's, he's picturing here the, the priests with their vestments and the, the twelve stones that are on that, that are on their their breasts there representing the tri- tribes of Israel but they're filled they're, they're all twelve precious gemstones that when you shine light on stones, on gemstones, what happens? They they reflect. So he says, just as the close proximity of the high priest to the divine glory in the holy of holies enabled the 12 precious stones on his breastpiece to shine and reflect that glory, and you can read about that in Exodus 28 and Isaiah 54, he says, so all believers will stand so close to God in the eternal new cosmos that they will perfectly reflect his glory. We see this illustrated in Revelation 4, where the 24 elders and the four living creatures give glory to God as they're surrounding the one seated on the throne. He had the appearance of jasper, it said, and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, Revelation 4, 3. Where God's presence is, there's radiant light. In other words, we behold the glory of God in worship through Christ, but in our fallen um, nature—sorry, I I, I lost my my place there—we behold the glory of God in worship through Christ, and then we begin to reflect that glory. And So part of what we're doing in worship is reflecting the glory that we're honoring. In our fallen nature, we will never reflect that glory perfectly. We're, we're, our minds are distracted. Our hearts are, are cold and indifferent, right? That's why we take some time to prepare our hearts before worship. In fact, you should begin before you get here. We only take a few moments here, but that's part of the, the idea is that we, we have to be stirred up, right? We, we need to acknowledge our need for the Spirit to do this work in our hearts to prepare us for worship. So we are always distorting the the image right we were created in the image of God but the fall has distorted that image and our ability to reflect it so Christ being sinless is the only human to perfectly reflect the glory of God in this life but what Greg Bill is getting to is that when we receive our glorified bodies in eternity we also reflect the glory of God without the diminishing effects of sin. How we are finally ushered into that eternal state that we have all been living for, whether we recognize it or not. That being said, I, I do want to say that we must always preserve the uniqueness of the Son. Our experience is always a passive reflection of the glory of God, whereas the Son is the active radiance of God's glory, and you can look through the Gospel of John for several examples in John 1, John 10, John 12, John 14. The point is this. The sun is God of God, light of light. Very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed teaches us. And so, if we have defined glory accurately in the beginning and broadly enough, then there's one more blessing that I want us to close out with considering since the sun is the radiance of god's glory then our union with him bestows upon us honor and fame i'm sure you're getting a little bit uncomfortable with that statement this is not a fame that's derived from other men right it's it's a fame with god we receive the honored title of sons of god The approval of God's son is attributed to all who place their faith in him. We are united to him, so it's as if we receive the the same benefits. We receive a share in the inheritance. This means that all of us are ultimately living for the acceptance and the appreciation of God. What drives us and motivates everything we do is, is craving God's affirmation. And we get a taste of that in our fathers, which is why so many people have father issues, right? Because we're in our fallen, in, in our fallen um, condition. We do not reflect these perfectly, but we always desire that perfection. And so it motivates it. Everything we do is a craving for God's affirmation. We long for our heavenly father to delight in us. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What's your response to that? Your maker rejoicing over you, delighting in you. It's, it feels wrong, almost, like because we recognize who we are, and we say, that can't, that can't possibly be true. It's too sacred for me to receive. We don't see ourselves as worthy to receive such glory, ever. And so maybe you, know, you think, well, he's just making too much out of this obscure prophet Zephaniah. Who really reads Zephaniah anyways? Listen to Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Not only does Isaiah state the same promise, but he paints for us an illustration that reminds us of this truth every time we witness a wedding. And if, if, if I've married you, then this was a statement that in that was reflected if i i didn't, don't i don't have many wives I, what i mean by marrying if i officiated your wedding you probably heard this phrase all right you heard this verse quoted at some point in the service because it reflects this beautiful picture of of a groom waiting for his bride anticipating her right excited and as he sees her he begins to delight in her He begins to rejoice. And so, what that brings us back to where we began, right? This glory of love. Despite Peter Cetera's claim, no earthly love lasts forever, even your marriage. And Daniel LaRusso moves on from Kumiko in the very next film. It did not last forever. But that deep-rooted desire even though it was flawed, that deep-rooted desire is evidence that one day believers will be entered into or ushered into a glorious eternity where that perfect love is reflected forever. And that's something we should rejoice in even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the incredible promises that we have from your word. And even, even just reflecting upon the inheritance that awaits in glory. And as we read in Revelation 22 that we will, we will see his face. The face of the sun. We will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. And there will not be any night anymore. No more night. Because, and there won't even be a need for the light of a lamp or of the sun. For the Lord God will be our light and we will reign forever and ever with him. Lord, these truths are too magnificent for us to comprehend. And yet, reflecting upon them humbles us, drives us toward you in worship. Lord, I pray for anyone who might be so fearful of your presence that they would flee or turn away. Or that, 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 that this might convict them that, that they don't have to do that. They can respond in faith. They can turn to you. They can, they can lay down the burdens that have weighed heavy upon them. And, in fact, take upon the yoke that is light. The yoke of your Son, Jesus Christ. And be united to him and to receive forgiveness. lord may may we delight in him even as we respond in song and as we partake in communion lord reflecting not only upon the gospel that has been proclaimed but even tasting and seeing that he is good lord may that magnify our view not only of this world and what you've called us to in this world but but our view of you, that we might enter into worship with the right perspective, a right sense of humility and of privilege, Lord, that we can lift up your name and that we can reflect that as imperfectly as we do now. That points us forward to that day when we will reflect you for all eternity. Lord, we thank you for this time. Pray that you would continue to allow our hearts to meditate upon these truths throughout this day that you've given us to rest and worship you. And may you truly be glorified and honored in all we think, say, and do. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our Hymn of response here, Hymn number 159, Abide With Me.